0: But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be ye troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ." For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, Wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You may be seated. To be here
1: this morning, I'm uh, grateful to have the Word of God um, so uh, freely in our midst and to study it and to teach and preach is uh, something, uh, certainly a responsibility, but it's also a tremendous pleasure, a privilege that we have to, to dig in and look at the Scriptures. I have been uh, working my way through the book of 1 Peter in a series of sermons here uh, at Weavertown the last while. And we find ourselves in 1 Peter 3 this morning with the text that was read. And I am always, uh, continue to be amazed at the amount of um, subjects, the the depth of the material. And um, consider myself, um, yeah, a little surprised at how how difficult it is for me to completely grasp what Peter and God is bringing to our attention. And this morning is certainly, this text here before us is certainly no exception to that. I find myself saying, um, asking questions and um, sort of feeling like I'm not sure that I really know what is um, the good explanation or what is, is being talked about or what Peter is taught, teaching here or what, is, what I should be teaching as I stand here and preach. So, um, I feel like I have a lot of material here this morning. I won't be able to cover all of it, and um, I assume that you are aware as well that um, part of my goal as a preacher is to stimulate thought so that you can dig in on your own, and um, my hope and prayer is that you would be stimulated to do that, and not only um, in your private conversations, but also... um, but also um, in our conversation, in our fellowship uh, after services and that sort of thing. So, in this section of 1 Peter, we are entering a uh, pretty significant um, portion of the book where Peter addresses suffering. And um, we Broke into that a little bit in the last sermon, if you remember, we were talking about suffering for doing what's right and um, being um, attacked or criticized by those who, um, yeah, for whatever reason, um, are not approving. And uh, he continues that same thought here in verses 18 and following, where he especially lifts up the impact of Christ's suffering. On, uh, while he was here on Earth, and uses Jesus' sufferings as an illustration of how we should suffer. And I, I know that when we're suffering, when there is pain, there's almost nothing else that we can think of, it seems. I've already had pain, maybe a toothache or something, and you all have had these same similar experiences, where it just dominates your existence. It's hard to think anything else except the pain that you have and how to get rid of it. Pain is a messenger. It demands our attention. It forces us to, to think about what's, what's wrong or what's going on in, in, uh, yeah, in our experience. And when we're experiencing pain, reasons or explanations often are not desired or maybe wanted. It can be that way. When you're suffering, you're, you're, what you're concerned about is, is what you're feeling. And Peter is addressing a group of people, a group of Christians here, who, as we discover in chapter 1, were scattered. They're probably mostly Jewish people. They are suffering because of what they're experiencing. They've been um, traveling. They've needed to leave their home and their familiar surroundings, their circumstances, because of persecution. And so they're feeling the heat of of this persecution. Now, like I said previously, there are passages in the Bible that I don't get quite as excited about teaching or preaching about. Number one is if the passage is difficult to understand, um, I find myself feeling like, man, let's choose something else. Or if, uh, and this passage actually ranks pretty, uh, rates pretty high in that in that uh, category. And then if if the passage or the text that Promises suffering I find myself sort of drawing back and maybe looking for something else to teach or preach about but both of these are incorporated here in this text. Both of these um, things come up here in the text so let's break in here and uh, I'll, I'll try to take uh, keep things moving here and hopefully try to explain things in a way or preach here today in a way that will leave you inspired and encouraged. I think one of my primary goals is to focus on Jesus Christ, which this passage does so very well. It talks about Jesus' suffering and his journey and the plan of of God for us and for all Christians, for all people, for all time. Christ also suffered. In verse 18, we have those words... Uh, Not quite in that order. And also in verse 14, you have uh, a similar um, phrase. I'm sorry, it's not verse 14. Uh, Another place here in the passage where it talks about Christ suffering. And um, that is such a fascinating thought. That God, God the Son, Jesus Christ... Suffered. He had not done anything to deserve that suffering. We suffer, I suffer because of things that I've done that are stupid or it's my own dumb fault or things that I've gotten myself into in some way, things sometimes that are wrong or not as they ought to be. Jesus didn't experience any of that. His suffering was not a result of what he had done wrong. He had not gotten himself into something because of his own dumb fault. But the scripture is very clear that Christ suffered because it was the plan of God. And I find myself just wondering about that. I appreciate that Christ suffered. I appreciate Isaiah 53 and passages in Scripture that teach about Christ's suffering on my behalf and how I benefit from that. I think we need to be careful that we don't... It's important for us to receive that, okay? But I think it's important also that we don't just think about what's in it for me. Christ also suffered. There's four things that I'd like to talk about in this portion of Scripture. The path of Jesus in this passage. And all four of these are talked about and noted. First of all, it's his crucifixion, his suffering, and it talks about his purpose. And then it talks about, in a later verse, about the resurrection of Christ. And that talks about his permanence and how that the resurrection... Marks Jesus as the Son of God. He is eternal. He is never going away. He will always be. And then it talks about his proclamation in some of these verses, several of these verses here. And that, I think, at least as I see it, talks about his plan. The plan of God and that sort of thing. And then finally, in verse 22, we want to look about Jesus' exaltation. Exaltation. And between points 3 and 4, when I started to study this passage, I was like, whoa, Peter is really on a bunny trail. In verses 19 and 20 and 21, and uh, I think I'm just going to go on that bunny trail with Peter. It's a nice fat rabbit anyway, so I think we'll just follow that path with Peter. So, we'll go on a bunny trail between points 3 and 4. First of all, his crucifixion. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, it talks about the will of God. And we've noted in some of the other sermons that I've preached here, I think there's at least three or four times where the will of God is mentioned here in 1 Peter. And at least twice it's mentioned in relation to suffering, or having things come to you that are undesirable. In this passage, it says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered. And verse 17, It is better if the will of God be so. The will of God in relation to Suffering. Jesus had not done anything wrong. He was doing everything right, but he suffered as a result of God's plan for us. He suffered and died. And he didn't just die a normal death, he died a painful death. He suffered as he died, as a result of crucifixion. And um, I'm sure that you have maybe, maybe some of you have thought about it. I didn't so much. The word excruciating itself, when you talk about excruciating pain, it calls attention, the middle of the, the word kind of the crux or the talks about cross, excruciating it calls, it caused our yeah, it, it calls attention to the cross. So when we talk about excruciating pain, maybe it's not as accurate unless we're actually hanging on a cross, but Jesus had excruciating pain, the cross. He suffered that kind of death and Actually, his suffering started before the cross, didn't it? And Peter was there when it happened. Peter was in an observer. He was watching. He was part of the crowd that day when Jesus was arrested. He was in the garden. He saw Jesus' extreme agony in the garden. He witnessed the trials. And there was not just one trial, but six trials and I think most scholars that have studied the trials will discover that they were all illegal or had all kinds of illegalities connected to them. And they were done in the middle of the night. He was falsely accused. Then Pilate had him beaten and taken to the place called Golgotha or the place of the skull. And there he was crucified for the sins of the world. So Peter is writing to a suffering group of people and he's saying, Jesus... Jesus Christ, our Savior, also suffered. And what you're experiencing is something that Jesus can identify with. And I want to especially call attention to the fact that it mentions that he was put to death in the flesh. He suffered in his body. That means that he physically died. He was put to death in the flesh. Physically, he died. He was actually crucified. And you know, as much as we suffer in our lives, as much as we have going on at any one point in our, in our lives, I doubt any of us will ever suffer like Jesus suffered. I doubt most of us will probably never experience anything close to what Jesus experienced. There's people throughout the world that have, perhaps, or will, but chances are most of us will not experience those kinds of things. Life can get bad. Life is trying, or there's pain in our lives because of relationships or whatever. But most of us never suffer like this. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted unto blood. In other words, most of us have not yet resisted to that extent. And that's true in 2023. We haven't given our life like Jesus did. What good was Jesus suffering? What was Jesus suffering? What was the purpose of Jesus' sufferings? Well, the text actually tells us. In verse 18, it says that that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. What was the purpose of Jesus' suffering? It was so that we could be brought to God. In verse 18, that we could be brought to God. I find that so comforting. This is our way. Jesus' suffering is our way to come to God. It is the way that we can receive salvation. And it mentions in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, which was part of the text for the last time, that if we suffer, we are happy or blessed. As a result of that, the blessing of God can be upon us as a result of our suffering. Again, so amazing. I I feel like I can't really explain that or make that really applicable to to you or me for that matter. I know that it's true. I know that there are things that come into our lives. And as a result of that, there's growth, maturity that comes into our lives But I find it um, sort of unsettling to think of that God brings suffering into our lives so that we can be drawn closer to him. So here's Peter's point. Suffering in the hand of a loving God can bring forth great benefits. And the best example of that is to look at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' crucifixion. He died on a cross. He experienced crucifixion, but that led to something more. Even Jesus' own experience shows us that suffering has benefits, has purpose. Then we see the next part here in point two about the resurrection. Jesus was crucified, but that led to resurrection. And The fact that Jesus was resurrected indicates that he is the Son of God. He is alive forever, eternally. He will never die again. The Bible says that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for us for us. The last phrase that Jesus spoke on the cross was it is finished. And I'm sure that that means uh, more than um, just one thing, but I think uh, I think that at least part of what Jesus was saying that his suffering was was nearly over. His suffering was over. His pain was just about over. All of the horrible things that he had experienced in the prior 6 to 8 12 hours was over, just about over, and he died. He had been at the hands of men for all of these previous hours. They did to him whatever they wanted. They had arrested him. They yelled at him. They cursed at him. They beat him and ultimately killed him. He was forsaken by his disciples. I think at least at minimum he felt like he was deserted by God. And all of that is about over. It is finished. He's going to die. But, but he was raised. He was raised again. Verse 18, that Christ also suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened or made alive by the Spirit. Paul puts it this way, for I reckon, verse 18, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, there it is. He's going to die. He's going to be raised. The resurrection changed the playing field. We'll talk about that in a minute. There was something that went on in the spiritual realm. There was something final or something momentous that took place in the spiritual world. And the resurrection ensures, assures us that not only for Jesus... But for all of us, the Bible says that there is a hope of eternal life, permanence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we also have teaching that how for us, what we're experiencing here on earth, on, on earth is temporary. It's, it's not permanent. So what the groanings and the things that we experience here on earth are going to disappear. If you're a believer, we can take a lot of solace in that. And I came across this quote, and i just take it for a quote that it is. It says that if you're a believer, the things that we're experiencing here on earth is the closest that you'll ever get to hell. It's the closest that you'll ever get to hell. And on the flip side, if you're an unbeliever, what we experience here on earth is the closest that we'll ever get to heaven. I think there's something I could learn from that. Our current suffering won't last. It is momentary if we're a believer. And compared to what's coming, compared to what is ahead of us as believers, you can't even really compare it. It's not a fair comparison at all. If you're a believer, it's all uphill from here. If you know Jesus Christ, there's a permanence. And it's so interesting to notice how the Bible wants to describe it. And when it talks about heaven, for example, the Bible describes our future often in negatives. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. it's, It's so difficult for John and anybody in the Bible who writes about heaven or the future. They only notice what's absent. They talk about no tears, no more death. No sorrow, no crying. In in the negative, it talks about what we won't be experiencing. There's no more death. There are no conditions that bring death. No more disease. No more hospitals. No more doctors. No more dentists. And I'm not saying if you're a doctor or a dentist that you won't get to heaven. But we won't need their services when we're in heaven. Nobody is going to need to get treated. Well, Jesus' crucifixion shows purpose. His resurrection shows permanence. And then, thirdly, we'll get there. There it is. Thirdly, it shows his proclamation, his plan. I called attention to the fact uh, the phrase there in verse eighteen, where it says that Jesus died in the flesh, and that means that he physically died, but it goes on to say that he was made alive by the spirit, and again i don't uh, I find myself wondering what that exactly means, and the first thing that I thought of was probably it means that the work of the Holy Spirit was active in in all of that time. The Holy Spirit is um, the wind or the pneuma or the breath that Adam and Eve were given. And it was likely that Jesus was resurrected by that same spirit or pneuma or wind. Breath is the word that is used throughout the Scriptures. But I'd like to suggest that well, several of the other translations take it a little bit differently, and they say that, it. well, let me just sit back up a little bit and say that in the Greek, there are, not, um, there are not as many proper nouns. So when it talks about the Spirit, my understanding is that in the Greek, it is not capitalized. So it could be referring to Jesus' Spirit, While he was dead physically, he was very much alive spiritually, would be another way of saying it. And he talks about the proclamation here. The proclamation. It shows planning. And these are some very difficult verses. I I don't know for sure what, what all is implied here. But the fact that Peter mentions this and does not give more details sort of makes me think that the audience had a better idea, a better understanding of what he was talking about, perhaps, than I do. And um, maybe there's something to be said about the Jewish thought in relation to all of this. I only dug into it very very, uh, very briefly. But there does sort of seem to be a, a Jewish thought or a Jewish way of thinking here that perhaps his audience was more familiar with than, than we are in our um, American Western mindset. So Jesus was dead physically, but alive spiritually. And it says that... Well, let me, just, let me just move on here. <clears throat> During the time between his death and resurrection, there was a time of proclamation. It says that he preached. He preached, in verse 19, he went and preached to spirits in prison. And again, we have that word spirit. The spirits in prison, who did he preach to? Well, the text gives us a little bit of indication who they were, who the spirits in prison are or were, and what they did to to, uh, receive that punishment. And the New Testament, uh, the word spirits, the word that's used here in 1 Peter 3.19, is always referred to angels or demons. it can be either good or bad uh, spirits. so what we can receive from this passage is that during the time jesus was jesus' body was in the grave he was his body was dead physically, but Jesus was alive in the spirit. He went to a place where spirits were held perhaps good spirits and bad spirits there are several other places in scripture that talk about this in Acts chapter 2 verse 27 it talks about um, how that Peter again interestingly Peter mentions in the sermon that Jesus went to Hades or hell he uses the, the prophecy about Jesus or God not leaving his soul in hell nor will you allow the Holy One to see corruption, or something like that. It goes on. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 to 10 talks about this. This seems like the same kind of teaching where after Jesus' death, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, it says in that passage, and declared... um, brought captivity captive, or something like that, it says. Um, I should have that verse by, by memory. So what are these spirits? Who are these spirits? Why are they in prison? Why are they incarcerated? What did they do to get there? Well, let me give you a couple of texts, in addition to the ones that are already mentioned, in Jude chapter 6, and also in Second Peter chapter 2, you have, again, texts that give indication that there were spirits... That were incarcerated; their eternal destiny was already sealed. And in Second Peter chapter two, and also in Jude six, it very clearly corresponds with this passage here in First Peter three, where it talks about the time of the flood, the antediluvian world, where there was um, the world was so evil and so corrupt that God couldn't hardly believe it, and so He destroyed the world, except for Noah and the seven other people that were with him. These passages talk about the, the pre-flood era, the time of Noah. And again, Peter doesn't give us a lot of specifics. It doesn't tell us, tell us what they said or what Jesus said to them. But I'd like to think of this proclamation as a, um, a, a not so much to change their eternal destiny. I think their eternal destiny was already sealed. But it was sort of a moment of victory for Jesus. The plan of salvation was proclaimed to them. This is what they said would never happen. And Jesus presents himself as the Savior of the world. Sort of an aha moment for Jesus. For the the, the program of God. These are powerful demons they have the liberty to do incredible things that i feel like i can't really explain according to genesis chapter 6 and jude 6 and second peter 2 it's hard to understand what all what actually went down in those uh, yeah in that account but god is more powerful than them he's the victorious one notice that they are in prison incarcerated by god i think that's that's powerful. God is the one who holds them, who holds the key. He's the one who has them incarcerated. Jesus went. He proclaimed. He preached. He preached to the spirits in prison. He preached something. There were words or a message that was given in some sort of way. The, the Greek word means that there was a proclamation or an announcement made. And again, I think it's sort of a victory celebration by Jesus. Perhaps when Jesus died on the cross, there was a party of sorts in hell where the spirits were aware of what was going on and they thought that it's God's son, we've killed him, it's over, we won. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that if the rulers of this world had known what was coming, they wouldn't have killed him. They would not have killed the Lord of glory, crucified the Lord of glory, I think it says in that passage. So perhaps by the time the crucifixion had rolled and around and things had, had uh, gone down, these demons thought that God had lost and they had won. Jesus did not only correct that, but he set himself up as, or he was set up by God as the victor. He presented himself to the demons in hell, the spirits that were incarcerated, as the winner. I heard about a man who was at a prayer meeting, and he prayed that God would take the cobwebs out of his life. And uh, the person next to him started his prayer when the first man was finished, and he started to pray. He said, God, don't answer my brother's prayer. He said, don't only clean the cobwebs out. He said, kill the spider. And I think it is something that we can see here in this passage. I thought it related. What Jesus basically announced to these spirits in prison, that the spider was killed. The victory was won. And Satan does not have the grip and the power that he once did, at least as I see it. I think there was a transaction, perhaps even a legal transaction that happened Um, as a result of Jesus' death. All right, now let's get into this bunny trail. In verse 20 and 21, he likens what I've been talking about to baptism. And like I said, I sort of had a what moment as I studied this? How? does this relate to baptism? And I don't know that I still really understand it. In verse 20 and 21, which sometime, he's talking about the, the spirits, were disobedient, while the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And he says that's a figure, that's a type, or more specifically an antitype, of baptism, water baptism. Or what kind of baptism is he talking about? And then, secondly, he goes on and he says that baptism saves us. Well, that's interesting. Throughout Christian history, there have all, uh, for hundreds of years, thousands of years probably, there's been this some Christians who believe in baptismal regeneration. And baptismal regeneration simply means that the people that believe that will say that the water itself, the baptism experience itself, saves us. That's baptismal regeneration. And some even cite 1 Peter 3, verse 21, for that belief system. The fascinating thing, to me at least, is that Peter says that it's like baptism. Noah was saved by water, but he was the only one that didn't get wet. Everybody else was baptized, immersed in the waters of the flood. I want to talk just a little bit more about that as as I go along here. Three, three things that I'd like to point out pretty quickly here. Baptism relates to the past. It says that it's a type or a figure. And basically what that means is that there's two corresponding events. There's two separate events that correspond to each other. An antitype, according to the Bible dictionary is a person or thing that is foreshadowed or represented by a type or symbol. And that's especially as it relates to a past event relating to the present. So baptism, in this text, says that it's like the flood, or it's like the things that connected to the flood, the events of the flood. So baptism relates to the past. Baptism also recalls a principle You see, it's a visual practice. It's something that is done publicly. Um, where in water baptism, it's something that's done publicly that implies something invisible or something that has already transpired. Now I want to um, just jog our minds here just real briefly, and that is the... the The term baptism itself. Now, in our 21st century mindset, when we think of baptism, we typically think of one thing. We think of water baptism. The event where believers will stand in the front of an assembly, they will give their testimony, water is applied, and that's baptism. The Greek word does not necessarily mean water baptism. In fact, the Greek itself, at least prior to Christian times, was just another word. It was a word that meant to, to dip, or to dunk, or to drown, to be brought under the power of something. It's the word baptizo, and it, it, it uh, implies that you are brought under the power of something. It doesn't necessarily mean a religious principle, practice, like it has come to be known since John the Baptist. The Bible uses it in several different ways and I want to point that out to you in 1 um, first, first Corinthians chapter 10 it talks about Israel being baptized as they pass through the dry land and the Red Sea. In Luke chapter 12 verse 50 Jesus makes a very interesting statement and that's the text there where James and John came to Jesus and they said, we'd like to sit, or actually their mom came and said, we'd like for these boys to sit, one on the left and one on the right. And Jesus said, are you able, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, oh yeah, yeah, we are. And he said, well, you got your wish. And he clearly talks about that passage is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about the baptism of suffering and death. In Mark chapter one verse eighteen, uh, in our Sunday school lesson a couple of weeks ago, John the Baptist uh, came and preached a brand new message. It was revolutionary because, for uh, I don't have the time to talk about all that, but he he makes a in John in Mark chapter one verse eight, he talks about three different kinds of baptism. He says, "I will baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." Three different kinds of baptism. And that's actually not a new thought at all to, um, to Christendom. That baptism is not strictly a, bapti- a water baptism. The Anabaptists in the 1500s frequently talked about the baptism of suffering or the baptism of fire. And they experienced that, some of them. They knew that it was something more than baptism and water baptism. In First Corinthians chapter twelve, it and I think twice in that passage it talks about being baptized into one body. Not talking, I don't think about water baptism. In Ephesians chapter four, verses five and six, there it talks about the, the baptism of salvation. One baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And again, there's a lot that could be said about that. I'm just trying to decide how I should wrap this up here now. Um, let me just say this. The, the people of Noah's time were immersed in the waters of baptism. They were baptizoed. It was a baptism of judgment for everybody except Noah and the people inside the, the, the ark. They escaped. The people inside the ark escaped the judgment by entering into the ark. They came under the power of the ark. as a a type of salvation or a type of Jesus Christ, the people inside the ark, you could say, were immersed in life. They were immersed in salvation. And so baptism, according to this passage, recalls a principle. Why should I be baptized? And I didn't talk about the fact that baptism also reveals power or authority. Why should I be baptized? What's the point of all of this? The subject of baptism. Why should I receive water baptism? Well, the Bible commands it. Throughout the New Testament, there are both Jesus and, the, and John the Baptist and the apostles recommended, commanded water baptism. And I'm going to give you two yeah, two, two instructions, or two reasons here. The, the Bible commands it, number one, instruction. And secondly, it's for the purpose of identification. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, verse 4, it says that like as Christ was raised, and again, that was, I was going to cover more of this on my point there about baptism being a sign of authority. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When Noah and and his family walked into the ark, they they were done with the old. The old was gone. When they came out of the ark a year later, the old was gone. They didn't go back to the old. It was a new life that they experienced. And I think that there's something about that, according to Scripture. When we receive baptism... It's not just for instruction. We don't do it because, only because the Bible says we should. But there is a, an identification that goes on. Perhaps sort of a legal transaction, if you wish. We're identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come. I want to close now by looking at the fourth point here. In verse 22 of our text here in First Peter. And that is Jesus' exaltation. <clears throat> the final step in this journey here in First Peter is exaltation. Where it says, Jesus is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So Jesus had a crucifixion. He made a proclamation. He had a resurrection. But he left earth. He ascended into heaven. And the Bible makes it as clear as could be that he is at God's right hand. And the right hand is a sign of power. Sorry for you left-handers. It's a sign of power and authority. It implies, it implies victory. It implies exaltation. And that is the whole point, I think, of this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11 talks about that, about the prestige that Jesus realized as a result of his suffering. It was not something that he pursued. It was not something that he tried to achieve, but God gave it to him. It was given to him. It was a natural progression of being faithful and suffering. He's exalted. So he's at God's right hand. And I think in the passage there where it talks about him interceding for us, is that in Romans, I believe, where it talks about he's interceding for us, making intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered? That gives us access to God. He intercedes for us. That's his job, his responsibility. This powerful, all-powerful figure. There's nobody, not one thing, not one person that Jesus needs to answer to. But he is watching out for us. It's a type of the ark. And the point, I think, of of Peter bringing this into the picture is simply to challenge us to come into that ark of safety to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God is going to keep us. Our future is under his watch and his care. There's nothing that's happening to you or around you that is outside of his care and keeping. I close with the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God it's as if Jesus can look through the time and see out into the future and he sees you he sees us he sees me and he says Father it's worth it I'm willing to suffer so that they can be brought into glory and I think it should be a lesson for all of us we can suffer because it. Prepares us for what the future, what God has for us in the future. If you are able, I invite you to kneel as we pray.